This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides taking it. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me this week is, um, well, look, he's a really lovely person, for starters, because he wrote these kind words. On One Heat Minute, host Blake Howard has been exploring Michael Mann's magnum opus, Heat, inviting fans and even filmmakers who are part of the production to explore the nitty-gritty of this crime saga, its filmmakers and the actors. In the 97th episode, he welcomes producer and TV writer Jordan Harper. And if being an Edgar Award-winning crime novelist isn't the proper credential to mansplain the 95 classic, then the fact that Harper owns bootleg heat action figures certainly should be. So I am talking today to an assistant editor at The Daily Grindhouse. Uh, he also writes for the AV Club where he wrote that lovely thing. Fandor, he's a bartender um, as well. Um, <laughs> and a self professed amateur bon vivant. He is Mike Vanderbilt. Mike, welcome to One Eight Minute. Thank you for having me, Blake. I genuinely appreciate it. And uh, I absolutely enjoy the show. Uh, I forgot who uh, turned it on, turned me onto it on Twitter, but I certainly appreciate it. I've got a lot to catch up on. Yes, and that's okay. It'll be there in perpetuity in its 170 episode arc, waiting for any new people going. I wonder if anyone ever did a one minute heat podcast and here it is it's all in the title mate thank there's you there's so lots of one minute podcasts but they're not talking about heat so they're not there's and there is only one that is talking about heat and that is this show look we've got so much to talk about um yes mike let's let's dive straight into the minute and then we can dive off into all things michael man because i i know um in pre-reading for the show you've written some great stuff particularly i love your manhunter um, article that you wrote on uh, the uh, what what is the best Hannibal Lecter movie? Stop everyone! Just stop everyone! I don't want to hear your arguments. Um, we'll get back to that at some point in the show, but uh, we're going to watch the minute together, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. moment in the film because it is it what kickstarts it's the it's the catalyst to uh, the centerpiece of the movie which is the big bank heist the big bank heist we're at the 103rd minute one hour 
42 minutes on your dial on the original theatrical cut. And the thing that struck me again, Mike, in watching this is just that even though this minute really ups the stakes from the preceding minute, you know, De Niro almost looks super cash when he's walking into the bank in, the, in, in just the preceding few seconds. He's sort of just like quite casual and you're like, even though this great up-tempo synthesized sound beat is sort of humming along and getting our heart rate up and you see them setting themselves up and staging themselves near these uh, security guards, you're like, oh dear, this is serious. Well, I, I think it doubles down on what uh, you guys were talking about on the episode that I wrote up for the AV Club about the precision. And not only the precision of the criminals in question, the characters, but also the precision of Michael Mann in the way he uh, shoots this sequence. Uh, as you said, uh, Robert De Niro is ultra cool in that. And uh, so is <laughs> this, the coolest you ever see Sizemore, because Sizemore is usually a loose cannon. <laughs> Yes. In real life, we're not even talking about his characters. We're just talking about uh, Tom Sizemore and, uh, of course, um, Val Kilmer. This is this is the cosplay that I'm dying to do with my two kids because my daughter has beautiful blonde hair. And I just really want her. I, I think I'll do the De Niro. I'll shave the goatee um, and I'll get my little man who's five months old. When he starts walking, we'll get some gray suits and some balaclavas. I think this is a Halloween outfit begging to happen for my family. But I, I love the unfurling, the unfur, the slot. Like I can't think of another heist movie where he, where you see them slowly unfurl like a mask. It's usually they're bursting in the doors. We're not in the bank very comfortably in a lot of heist movies. Like you don't see them set up and orchestrate like that. Even in public enemies, a later man film, you see them walk in and they set themselves up with the same or a similar sort of old timey precision. But they're all, you know, they're not having to be aware of cameras. In this moment, they know the cameras are off. They walk in, they slowly put the masks on, really just so that the, the, there can't be too many witnesses to what they're about to do. Um, but no, yeah, and, I, I can't remember that. No, and I, I noticed that, and there was a moment where, as I was watching it, I was, I was uh, watching it again last night, um, where I think, well, why are they walking in without the mask? I was like, and I remembered that they had done the thing, there are no the security cameras are down. They're done. The security cameras are off. Yeah. So nobody would have even noticed these three guys, three more guys in suits walking into the bank in the middle of the afternoon. I think I've ever seen, I can't think of it. Another, uh, another heist movie where you saw that unfurling of the masks and everything. Once they got in there, it's either they walk in, in the masks or they never put the masks on at all. Yeah. And there's also like a big, you know, the, the other sort of funny one, another great 90s heist movie of Point Break. Like there's the famous, like the mask rips off. Right. And that's a huge, that's such a significant moment because you know, and that's like that great sort of, you know, um, authenticity of like cause and effect in that movie as well. Like, you know that these guys have been spotted on, you know, grainy CCTV footage in every bank heist that they've done. Uh, and these guys are just on a completely other level. Um um, to do this and I, I I love like you know Michael takes his cues from Neil so you know Mike uh, you know from Tom Sizemore takes his cues from De Niro here unfurls his mask slowly same with De Niro before they sort of execute but the one who kicks this whole bad boy off is Chris like he can't even he's not gonna pause 
the opportunity of getting the upper hand on a security guard to put the mask on. Like he just like wails on him first, then gets down, his hair's all messed up in his face, and then he pulls the he pulls the the uh, the balaclava over his face right there. Which is interesting. I mean, if you think about like just typecasting as actors, you kind of expect that to be the role that Sizemore is playing. But to see yeah. Val Kilmer do it, and uh, you know who before this was always probably just considered a pretty boy. I mean, he'd always done yeah. interesting roles. To see that explosion of violence after that precision opening, I feel it's it's also it's very indicative of Michael Mann, too, which are yes. quiet character moments and explosions of violence. And uh, to uh, talk about the mask thing you were talking about and going back to Point Break, one thing I uh, so I'm sure you have discussed L.A. Takedown the. The rough draft, the demo version of Heat that Michael <laughs> Michael Mann did uh, for NBC in 1989. In the opening robbery in Heat, nobody loses their mask when they have the Jason masks on, the hockey mask. But in L.A. Takedown, somebody does lose their mask, and that's what incites them in killing the three uh, security guards. And it's... I think it's a interesting parallel, and I wonder if that was a moment that man purposely excised from the Heat script that was in the L.A. Takedown script uh, for one reason or another. Yeah, I we you know it's funny. I when I was a little bit of behind the magic when I was talking to Mike about this, Mike's like, "Oh, of course, L.A. Takedown's been covered, Blake. We can't talk too much about L.A. Takedown." And what's strange, Mike, is that not a lot of people are familiar with it. Like they know that it exists, but they don't know it as exactly how I think you put it so succinctly. It's like, it is the rough draft of heat. It's, it's the, it's the version of this movie that has the plot holes that would infuriate you to death. <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you, if you like, like we just talked about that great causality of like, why would these guys go into this bank and, and not have the masks on? And, and, and it's, it's, you might've forgotten or you might've been caught up in the moment and just not realized what was happening, but you can go back and watch this movie and go, Oh, that's the moment where they literally tell you in two different scenes, they're going to trick out a video camera so they can't be seen. And so I think it's also a bit of a testament of like, that's just too easy. It's such a, I don't know. It's, it's such a plot device that we've seen in so many things where one of the crooks gets seen or someone's tattoo gets seen. Like it feels like, I think the great thing that Heat gets about that detection piece that in, in stark contrast to LA Takedown is like Vincent has pure luck to even get a sniff of who this crew is. Like they are that good. It's just pure flukish luck from a CI it's it's not you know it, it's great police work because he's exhaustive but it's so like he just catches a hair and then it, that's that adds to all those great following moments with Neil actually being genuinely shocked Jesus Christ what the fuck where did this heat come from like where did it actually come from it's 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 all those things and if if I know anything about Michael Mann and the way he researches his projects uh I, there I mean he, he kind of pieced heat together from several real stories that he had followed and interviews with a lot of Chicago police, which is my hometown that I'll guarantee. I love, can I say, Mike, firstly, I love your accent on this show. <laughs> personally, I mean, on a Michael Mann show, I love it on this show so much. Um, there's another, uh, 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 one more Chicago connection in heat that I love is when um, uh, the actor who played uh, Bubba Gump, what's his name? 
uh, Michael T. Williamson. Yeah. Um, he uh, he uh, he uses the term jagoff, which is uh, a very Chicago. It came from Pittsburgh, but uh, Chicago has adopted it as its own. I wrote an article for the AV Club when Jagoff got uh, put into the Oxford English Dictionary, where I used the term Jagoff at least 30 times. And <laughs> I, I'm sure, I mean, Michael Mann, having grown, grown up in Chicago, I, I, I like when he puts just little things in there like that. Uh, and Jagoff's a favorite term of mine because it can mean somebody's an asshole or it can mean like, hello, friend. <laughs> or, does, yes. or at the same time. Oh, oh, exactly. It's, it's got that lovely duality. <laughs> Michael Mann would love that. But I'm sure he, talking about um, the luck, I'm sure in his research, a lot of these police officers said, yeah, it was it was luck that led us. It was, yes, police work on top of luck or luck on top of police work that led them to make these busts. Yeah, to bust someone really good. Because, you know, it, it, that's one of the emphatic things here is, you know, Vincent's really good. And he has to prove it. He has to prove that he's willing to stay out, you know, in that first 48 hours when he's trying to find these guys who are better than anyone he's ever dealt with before. It means following stupid leads and going to clubs in Koreatown at 3 a.m., you know? And, like, you know, it, it means that that's – got to sacrifice that time just in the hope that you can gather just that – And he gives up on it. Slight... He, he, give, he, he gives up on it. It's when he walks away that in – in he's the term slick that leads him to that. And in L.A. Takedown, it's the term sport. Board, which are two of my favorite, as I call them, mannerisms, which are phrases or terms that you hear in uh, Michael Mann's scripts uh, frequently, like sport. Uh, obviously, we heard that in Manhunter. Uh, slick is used yeah. at least once or twice in uh, Thief. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that the, he used both of those terms in both L.A. Takedown and in Heat. And that was the, the telltale sign that kind of the dumb luck that gives Hannah the, the upper hand. And I think that that's so, it's sort of like a, it's a nod to his vernacular, but it's also, this is so commonplace. Like, like even when Vincent says right at the beginning, when they hear slick, they're like, search it. You're going to get the phone book. Do it anyway. Right. <laughs> like, just, you know, like it's just, this might be nothing, but we'll, we'll just see what's happening. Um, you're a man fan. You've written extensively about, about him what what do you think that what what do you think mike that makes us come back and makes when you know as we said at the beginning of this show like what makes him inimitable what makes him like you're not talking about heat or you're not talking about manhunter you're not talking about michael mann films like what what's happened for in you know in our generation that's coming through now that like we've elevated this guy to to these lengths and or you know sort of uncovered and gone hey stop you know this is a guy that you've missed we need to scrutinize his work in a more detailed way. What do you think? I, I think it's something where you kind of, like for me, I'm 38. So I sort of grew up around his work, but not ever really piecing it together till I was older that it was all the same guy. So, you know, yeah. I was a little too young for Miami Vice, but I was aware of it when it was on. I mean, when I went to my uncle's wedding in 1990, I was told that I couldn't wear a pink T-shirt, but I could wear a pink button-down shirt with my, the white sport coat that I wanted. <laughs> and um, also, I growing up, I really dug Crime Story because of the Chicago, yes. Chicago connection. And I uh, just dug the way Dennis Farina looked in a long black trench coat because 
that's something that has, as I was piecing it together, that, oh, the same guy who did Miami Vice did Manhunter. The same guy who did Manhunter did Thief. The same guy who did Thief did Heat was that I was always drawn to his style in, in films, not yeah. only visually. In fact, I was, uh, in doing research for the show, I was reading a, a review of the Chicago Tribune that said of Manhunter that it's full of useful tips on interior decoration, but a movie it's not. <laughs> Which is a slight towards Manhunter, I think, and I also think sells Manhunter short. But that's part of what I like about Michael Van. Like I liked it, yes, how stylized he was. And I think our generation, my generation, your generation, we grew up on music videos, and we like high style. And we went through the '90s where independent film was kind of a guy with a camera and very, you know, bare bones, simple stuff that. You know, we like we 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 still have that love of music video in our hearts, and we like we like I, I like I like Michael Mann's style. That's what that's what does it for me. How about for you? Yeah, uh, look, I think it's I think it's a combination of all those things. I think it's like I dug, I I love his aesthetic. I love that it makes sense, but it is heightened. Like everything is heightened. You know, it's like it's the it's it's the most perfect gray suit of all the gray suits you know for vincent well, um in collateral absolutely and for neil i mean if you if you trace the gray suit like i mean as part of michael mann's visual aesthetic like you, <laughs> we see uh the nero wear it a double-breasted version and um <clears throat> excuse me the actor on uh who is in la takedown playing the uh the neil mccauley character he wears Almost the exact same gray, exactly the same. Uh, double uh, double breasted suit, and then you see Tom Cruise do it in Collateral, which is a single breasted, you know. But it's always with that white t shirt or the, the the white button down shirt. So yeah, it's very simple. And I think in the case of Heat, it's interesting in that that's what the Nero's wearing, and it's very kind of basic. Whereas yes. the police officer dresses a little bit more flashy. Yes, yes. The police officer wants to show that he's well put together for intimidation, and Neil just wants to blend. And like you even see it in Miami Vice. There's, I mean, they've they've got those great. I think they're wearing. They might be wearing blue button downs. I can't remember if it's white or blue. But there's a great scene where they're both awaiting their first meeting with Montoya before they kind of get flipped. That no, you're gonna have it in a in a car in a slum. It's funny they kind of slip past you in the film because they're not wearing them properly. When you see them, they're kind of holding them down. They're standing down in Haiti and it's hot and they roll their sleeves up and they're like, God damn it. They put their jackets back on and they go back to their room for one moment and they're there. But yeah, look, the style got me, but I, I just loved them. I love the portrayal of real people that were searching for something and they were so good at what they were doing, but they were all searching. They were all longing for something. There was a, there was something missing. So some, it was sort of a beautifully romantic for a young, like when you're a young man and you're trying to be a little bit philosophical, I guess. But like, it's like, there's like a bit of an existential crisis that was happening with all these guys. And as you go back and you retrospectively look at older, you know, new Hollywood movies from like Cassavetes, early Scorsese, Popola, all these people are in crisis um, and they resonate. I think they just really resonate so strongly for me. It's like the movie's, all of Michael Mann's movies could have been made in 1975. Absolutely. Like every Absolutely. one of them. Everyone. 
<laughs> and so that's why I love, I don't know, it's like, that might be my favorite movie making year ever, but I just look at that year and I'm like, there's something about the style, there's something about the elevation, there's something about the movie magic, something about the production. And I think that he's like carried that, that ethos with him through all of his pictures. And I just, I just and adore it. I love the, the way it comes. I think out. also, I mean, just being a guy, like his movies are very much, I mean, they're about men. Like, I, I, yes. I can't speak for how he writes female characters, but the the male characters are always complicated. And you like, like you said, philosophical, introspective, and like they're manly. They're they're what traditionally you know man's men would be. But there's another layer to them where not only are they sharp dressers, but they also there <laughs> there's an internal struggle going on there. Uh, James Conn in Thief, he thinks that having a wife and kids and building a normal life is going to be what's going to save him. Like, that will make everything normal, but that's not going to work out for him because he's a thief. He doesn't he doesn't know how to do anything else, and he's going to keep going back to that life. And that's ultimately what leads to everything falling apart for him in that movie. Uh, will Graham, which I, I think Manhunter is an interesting uh particularly interesting film in the Michael Mann uh, catalog because it's not based on an original story by him, but it's, no. it's like him as an auteur, like the director as an auteur where he makes that movie a Michael Mann movie. Uh, and Willie Graham yes. is very much a Michael Mann character. He's a complicated man who's just struggling to balance work life, which happens to be chasing serial killers and his home life, and his own personal well-being. And you see a lot of that in Hannah, in Heat. And you, and you also see the sympathy for the serial killer with man. He says in the, he talks about, um, you know, the, the Francis Dollarhide character in the book being a little bit more cartoonish, and he said he had Tom Noonan um, study a particular serial killer, and the name escapes me at this minute, but study a particular serial killer who had had horrendous abuse as a child from his family and that really kind of did you know psychological enduring psychological damage to him and emotional damage that then manifested in him being extremely violent later on in his life and he said he wanted to, he wanted uh, tom as a, as a great actor as he is tom noonan he wanted him to sort of infuse that sympathy into the character portrayal like he is a monster but you know he's had some really gnarly things happen to him in his life and we need to sort of acknowledge that as part of his arc to, to bring this conversation back around to heat, uh, I know that's something Michael Mann intended to do, and he kind of did it perfectly on this movie, was to draw the parallels between Hannah and Macaulay, where as an audience member, you, you want to see Hannah bust Macaulay, but you also want to see Macaulay get away. Um, you're not rooting against either one but you're rooting for both of them and you're just hoping the confrontation that is not going to happen uh, but ultimately you know that it will and it has to and you kind of know who needs to probably win <laughs> yes and I, I I think that that's such an astute observation from him and you is like there's no moment when Neil's on screen that you that you're not rooting for him to succeed, even in this bank heist, you're like, please go well. I don't want you. It's to like when anymore. you, 
it's, it's, all the it's money. like when you watch Psycho <laughs> and uh, Norman Bates is trying to get the car to drown and it looks like it's not going to go down and you're like, oh, I hope he gets away with it. It's like, no, you're you're not supposed to be. But you are because you have built some yes. sort of sympathy or empathy for for this character. And it's the, the same thing during the bank heist. You find yourself like you want him to get away, but you're like, no, these are bad guys. But are are they really like as they said to when they when they walk in and they rob the place you're like you know hey this isn't your money this is the bank's money like you're insured insured. you're insured i love that line because it's like you all chill out like we're just taking we're just taking the big guy's money you y'all are fine yes because they would never they would never take money from someone like that they're you know they're their people right they're their people. Yeah, right? that's that's not their style. They're not going to rob from themselves. No, rob from the rich and give to the poor, but not the poor just happen to be them. They're not. They're not. They're not giving them. that stuff away. <laughs> no, no. We'll rob from the rich and we'll yeah, keep it. keep it for ourselves. For ourselves. <laughs> Fair. I'll, I'll I'll buy into that. Talking about Pacino all the time. Talking about Robert De Niro. Uh, in these Val Kilmer moments, like these moments where he really shines, like I just want to shine a light on him because really he is like the third significant leading man in this movie and his intensity and his focus and just the authenticity that he delivers. Like, like you were calling out before how he just, you know, wails on the security guard without warning. Um, I just, I, I just love his performance so much. And I think in this heist, this is like some of the sort of physical and authenticity peaks of his like performance career right now, all happening at once. I, 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 I I agree with you one hundred percent because you get you get um uh what is it uh Dennis Haysbert's character and um uh, Tom Sizemore's character are kind of told in broad strokes but you really get to see Val Kilmer's home life and you kind of get to explore much like uh, De Niro and Pacino like why this character is doing this yes. and he seems to have more complicated reasoning than you, uh, than you would normally get out of a, uh, out of a, out of a crime movie like this, out of, you know, one of the, somebody who isn't the, the main thrust of yes. the, of the story. Yeah, totally agree. And he's, and he gets, we get huge confessional moments with, you know, the line of the film, you know, um, you know, we, when you spot the heat running out, uh, come around that corner, we're sleeping on Neil's floor you get the confrontations with Charlene, you get the happy moments, you get to watch him sort of doing the deed at the beginning of the film in that preparation and um, and and in that phenomenal moment where Neil basically says, do we go, do we stay or do we go? He's never, he's unwavering. He's so sure of himself and his eyes are just as piercing and as intense and as focused as basically anything I've, any actor I've ever seen. And he's in front of De Niro. I love, I think, I'm not sure about you, but that's one thing I do when I love writing about different films and comparing actors. It's like when you see, when you see people reacting to who you know are powerhouses and they just don't <laughs> seem unwavered, you're like, wow. And the, the movie most recently that just popped into my head is there's a scene in Widows where Cynthia Erivo's character is standing across from Viola Davis. And Viola Davis is just like, like pouring hot lava out of her eyes at Cynthia Erivo and she just stands there like it's nothing. And you're like, oh, she's going to be good. 
she's going to be so good. <laughs> like, she's going to have a career forever because Viola Davis scares the shit out of me in this scene. And, and I'm just sitting in a cinema seat, you know. So I, I love looking at those, you know, those people who are really having to dance with the great actor across from them. Uh, how much that. do you think that was um, – do you think that's uh, – what do I want to say? Do you think that's Val Kilmer just kind of being at the top of his game? Or do you think that's man as a director kind of directing these actors on how to uh, – work with each other i think it's probably both i think it's like how much would you want to be on top of your game if you were if you were the third lead in an al pacino and robert de niro movie, you know like he's on the poster you know he's on the badge yeah. of this show you know like he's there so i think it's like a combination of both like perfect time perfect place um in that wonderful academy award q a you know val kilmer unfortunately was recovering from throat, throat surgery um so you couldn't really hear what he was saying well but in it he talked about like his fondest memory of preparing for Batman forever was preparing for heat. Like he's like Batman forever was like, I was training in the gym, getting ready for heat. Like the whole time I was shooting that movie, that movie was no fun, but heat was coming up and I knew that it was going to be, you know, one of the biggest roles of my career. And Oh, that, oh yeah. Those are, those were back to back, back to back. Yeah. And uh, huge Warner brothers products. So that, you know, they had the, at least the, the nice, uh, we'll be nice to each other and we'll give you Val Kilmer. Um, at, I, at least, at least heat heat has aged better than uh, Batman Forever. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I, poor Joel Schumacher. His films haven't aged the best across the board. Almost. Across hey, the- I'll, I I will come to the defense of Batman and Robin. If you look at it as a pretty good episode of the 1966 television series, and just accept it as that, it's. It can be a lot of fun. That's, Look, that's all. I'm, and, and we'll, talk, the poor we'll can, talk about that on the Batman and Robin minute uh, <laughs> podcast. The poor thing that I have to say for George Clooney is, you know, a lot of people have compared him to other Batmans. Like, oh, he's no Christian Bale or he's no Michael Keaton or, you know, even Defenders of Batfleck. He's no Batfleck. Well, his comedic timing doesn't even hold a – it doesn't hold a candle in a hurricane to Adam West. Like, the, no. deliver – if that if they could retroactively put Adam West in that movie, it would be the be- it might be the best Batman movie ever made. <laughs> might be. And uh, somebody will cut that together on YouTube for us. I'm sure. <laughs> Come on, YouTube, go cut Burt Ward and Adam West into that into movie. into Batman and Robin. Yes, it needs it desperately, desperately. Um, but yes, yeah, so Val, Val Kilmer, without a doubt, is uh, is gangbusters. In, in this scene, like you said, like as we keep going back to it, there's it's a real quiet moment. I mean, a film's filled, heat is filled with quiet moments for as much as people really kind of remember the heist, which is loud, yes, and awesome. Like, you can't, it's undeniable. Like, it is a very kind of quiet film, and it is and being punctuated with those uh scenes of extreme violence. And and this is it's it's also it's the worst movie to watch on Blu-ray at night, you know, if, if you're in your house because you usually have it cranked up really loud for the sort of quiet contemplative conversation scenes, intimate things, and then huge explosion and very oh, realistic yeah. gunfire. 
my, my volume my volume was up to like 92 last night when I turned on the TV this morning. And I was like, the hell was I watching? And I was like, oh, I, I was watching Heat before bed. <laughs> and I and when the gunfire went off, I nearly jumped out of my bed because <laughs> it was crazy. So is, uh, you know, you, you've, you're a fan of man, you're a fan of this, uh, this film in LA. I, I asked this since, you know, I'm really lucky, you know, some great guests such as yourself have been on the show and I hadn't thought of it um, until it was brought to my attention by Sean Burns, who, the, the awesome Bostonian critic. Um, but Sean talked about how weird it was that these very East Coast guys were in a very LA movie. That felt like it should have been a Chicago movie. Do you like as a Chicago, like as a Chicago native when you're watching this movie is, you know, so, so sort of quintessentially LA or maybe not LA in this sort of, you know, weird version of LA. Do you, does that ever like, does that ever mesh with you? Because you know, someone in Australia, that never really clicked with me until someone's like, oh no, these are such New York guys. It it's, just- it was crossed my mind when I was revisiting it last night. How, especially when I heard uh, Jagoff. the term Jagoff used as, because not only is the cast very quintessentially New York, but Michael Mann is very quintessentially Chicago. Yes. But I don't know if it doesn't mesh, but it does stand out as I wonder how deliberate these decisions were to put these New York guys, this very Chicago story into Los Angeles. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, I think Michael Mann uh, being the visual stylist that he is, particularly when you watch LA takedown, which I'm not going to, I will never sit here and say that LA takedown is a better movie than heat. <laughs> it's just because it's not true, but there are certain things that I take away from LA takedown that I might dig a little bit more in that, L.A. Takedown is drenched in neon. It resembles Manhunter more than it resembles, like, Heat kind of, you see the uh, move, uh, you almost see the second wave of Michael Mann's career moving into the more muted colors and uh, the digital stylings that you would see in Collateral and uh, Miami Vice. Um, I I wonder if it, it was a conscious decision to, Take this, and I think Michael. I was going to say rather start again. I think Michael Mann just likes the way Los Angeles looks. Yeah. He likes the lights. He likes uh, that it is like L.A. is undeniable on screen. Yeah. I, I would say the same for Chicago and New York, but Vancouver and Toronto have uh, substituted for New York and Chicago so much yeah. that it, it is easy to get it twisted. Uh, I think I, I, I think it was uh, uh, probably a style uh, a style decision on Michael Mann's part to put these guys there. Yeah, and I think also um, one of the things you, you just touched on exactly what you know one of our you know our favorite guests ever, Dante Spinotti, said. He's like, "LA is LA is the most beautiful canvas." You know, to paraphrase what he said, it's like the most beautiful canvas. There are so many angles in LA that everything looks inherently cinematic. There's just something about it, even all these little dark tucked away corners have just got some cinematic set kind of quality and all the textures i think he really explores it in collateral too all the different textures of the culture clash that's happening in la 
you know, it's not a monoculture. It's this weird mix of everything. So this lovely mix of, you know, as you said, a Chicago guy bringing in New York guys, shooting in LA, using like, you know, th this slang and this diversity of like thought all just sort of clashing together. It makes it really quintessentially LA because everyone is from somewhere else. Right. And it also provides kind of an otherworldly uh, sensibility to it where, as you said, yes, it is quintessentially LA, but I mean, it could be set anywhere or yeah. it could be in this, this weirdo alternate dimension. Um, if you really want to get weird with it, I guess, but <laughs> it's, it's the every place. It, it doesn't have to be LA, but it, it is. It's sort of like the structures as a, you know, you know, when you, when you, when you unpack, you know, that Michael Mann wants to know about, you know, the, the clash of different judicial systems based on colonial powers uh, in, in the Americas. And he understands that innately when he makes Lost in the Mohicans, you're like, this guy was pretty sure that he wanted this to happen in LA. <laughs> like right. he wanted, oh, the yeah. he wanted the robbery homicide division. He wanted those, those things happening there um, across the board. Like he, want, he wanted, he wanted that. And it probably goes back to his research as well. Like in his research, he probably, if I know anything about Michael Mann, he's very meticulous and he, there was a reason that had to happen there to, to double down on what you said. I love in this scene, there's one little moment we haven't had a chance to talk about is um, the very deliberate cut to De Niro's eyes. I just love that the whole scene is very, you know, s scene setting and, and uh, uh, you know, outlaying the sort of the, the topography of the space. You know, we know where we know where Sizemore's standing. We know where Kilmer's standing. We see them sort of make this triangle, this sort of little this wall of um, you know uh, people, and there's the different partitions of the desks of all the different bankers. Um, uh, you I, say that it's told, being told through uh, Robert De Niro's point of view. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. I love that that reinforce the reinforcement of his perspective. Like, and it's also checking in to make sure what is he doing. Like, why are we it's also the audience. I think it's like a tell for man to go watch what we're doing here. It's like perspective. I don't know if it's perspective or if it's like there's very deliberate staging about to happen. Everything has to be perfect. We're waiting for stars to align in this space. And it's like once they get into that moment, because I think in, in a strange way, as we sort of touched on earlier in the episode, it was like how many movies have we ever seen before where they just didn't burst into the bank? Like we're like a good 40, 50 seconds into this, into the time in the bank by the time any action happens at all. And I, I, yeah. I, and it's, it makes for a, it, it, it makes for a memorable heist. Yes. And I think, like you said, it, it's all about perspective and precision. Michael Mann is all about precision. He, he, I mean, I think in another world, Michael Mann could have been a pretty good uh, bank robber. If he if he didn't choose to be a film director, my my thought my thought is when people say, "What is Michael Mann doing? Why isn't he making another film?" I'm going to say, "Look at unsolved bank robberies. <laughs> Look at have you got any highline burglaries that have mystified us? Like that's what I'd be saying about Michael Mann. I think he knows how to take a place down, Mike. I think he knows. I think he's he's mystifying us as we speak. You know, there there this could be happening. He could just be chilling now, relaxing." getting a little bit older so you know but uh I, in an imaginary world i like to think that michael mann's just you know coaching the next craft of great 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 crooks great crooks. um 
You know who was a you know who was a big fan of Heat was uh, Anthony Bourdain. Really, I didn't know that. Well, I interviewed him for Daily Grindhouse, where we talked about our ten favorite heist movies because he did not like Baby Driver, and <laughs> neither did I. Uh, that was somewhere, and um, so I called him on the phone one day, and he sat and talked about his uh, ten favorite heist with movies with me. And what he said of Heat was. I think Heat is the modern-day asphalt jungle. It's ambitious. It's got Pacino and De Niro. It's a project that man had worked on for a long time and even did a rough version for television. Expectations were high for Heat. It's an ensemble like asphalt jungle. It's got some pretty heavy hitters. Everyone's pretty great in it. It looks stunning. In many ways, it's a perfect heist film that lives up to asphalt jungle, and that's hard to do. Wow. What? Oh, goosebumps. That's... It's big. That's big praise. I, yeah, and I, it it's it stood the test of time for a reason. Yes, I think. Yeah, Heat has. And I think there are heist movies that do that. Uh, you know, Asphalt Jungle. What's you know that I spoke to in just the episode that's just gone. You guys will hear Chris Evangelista from Slash Film and I were talking, and he he talked about before Heat. It's like all heist movies. There's like a there's like a bar where it's you know, Dog Day Afternoon, every heist movie gets compared to Dog Day Afternoon and then there's a point where it comes up to Heat and, like, then after Heat exists, every movie, every heist movie gets compared to Heat. It's like, just stop. You know, Heat's the new bar. And I wonder, you know, what that next bar is, but it's so, you know, it's so astute of Bourdain to talk, call out Asphalt Jungle, you know. It's like, it's that kind of, you know, Asphalt Jungle may have been the movie before that. That's like, that's the movie. That's so cool that you got to talk to Bourdain. And Bourdain's got a bullshit meter... That is famous. So I love that he liked heat because um, yeah, I, I would, if, if, if anybody's interested, you can find the article on daily grindhouse uh, where we talked about 10 of his favorite heist movies, including friends of Eddie Coyle, asphalt jungle, uh, thief. Uh, so there's two Michael Mann entries on the list The Getaway. Uh, it was a good, it was a good talk. It was a good talk. Um, I, it, one of my favorite things that I've ever had the pleasure of writing because I like, and what I think what's cool about what you do with your show, too, is that you don't necessarily just talk to, you know, critics or film. It's, you bring in an array of people to talk about this one movie that they love. Like, and I like talking, like, Bourdain's known for being, you know, a chef or a TV host, but, like, he liked movies, too. Yes. And he's, and also, you know, although he's a, a TV personality, he... He captured probably like the best, rea- it's like the best reality travel cooking show ever. And like every other show for any genre is like, it's, he, he's it's the, the only standard. one I can stomach. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's the, he's the asphalt jungle. Like he's the asphalt jungle for every cooking and reality TV show forever. <laughs> true. True. May, I agree. May, may he rest in peace. Bless him. And he has, and, and if, and if there's one thing that I can say in wrapping up today's episode, if anything is sure in the world, it's that Anthony Bourdain had phenomenal taste. And so, and after your interview, that's only further reaffirmed in his movie taste. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the 100 and holy sweet Jesus, 103rd episode of One Heat Minute. I've been talking How many to you. Go? How many more to go? Oh my goodness, there are 67 episodes to go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Almost there. It's almost there. Oh, God. Um, 67 episodes to go. I've been talking to the 
awesome Mike Vanderbilt and extremely generous with his time and his lovely words. Um, I will post that great Anthony Bourdain uh, interview in our One Heat Minute. Um, if, you, if you go to oneheatminute.com and you go to the episode, I often put links in our bios of our awesome guests. I'll make sure I put that one in there. Also put a couple of... Um, Previous writings that Mike's done at Daily Grindhouse for um, uh, Michael Mann, particularly Manhunter. Um, I love that piece. Everybody so, loves that piece. Every time I repost that, it 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 gets a little traction, and uh, I'm happy that it does. But I don't know. I, I can't. I wish I could figure out the formula so that I could use it on everything that I write. My, you just exhaust. <laughs> you you just are a very meticulous and exhaustive in your discussion <laughs> and and strangely talking to me right now in this really meticulous and exhaustive discussion of eat it's just like once you i don't know people just really drive with those things that you're super passionate about you can just read it in the words so look mike thank you so much for being a part of the show i'm really 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 grateful so thank you sir. thank you for thank you for having me sport i'll be happy to come around on the back end <laughs> we will see you somewhere down the line slick um and uh I'm, I'm really looking forward to that if you want to catch mike it's at mike vanderbilt on the twitters um that's where you can find him v-a-n-d-e-r-b-i-l-t um you can find him on the twitters there and then you can bounce off to all of his other great stuff dailygrindhouse.com all those things thank you so much again mike guys thank you so much for listening um this has been another episode of one heat minute we'll catch you on another episode of one heat minute just around the corner